Hi, and welcome to the Slush Podcast. As you probably know, Slush is the world's leading startup event. You're about to hear an interview conducted at Slush 2017 on the Founder Studio stage, where the biggest names in tech sit down for an intimate Q&A. Pete Flint, who is the founder of real estate website Trulia, is now searching for network effects as a co-founder of venture capital firm NFX. He was interviewed by Anna Ratala. Let's start with a bit of a warm-up question. So just now on the founder stage, when, when you were talking um, a lot about you know your your previous uh, ventures and, and entrepreneurship, I wanted to ask something about um, NFX, right, uh, where you're the managing partner now. So it's quite interesting what you guys are doing. So you're not just investing um, and, and pouring money. You're actually also building tools for entrepreneurs to help them. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? What kind of tools and how do you do that and, and, and how do you provide that help for the startups that you invest in? I guess, so the observation is that, uh, you know, you, you know, we raise as entrepreneurs, the founders have raised hundreds of millions of dollars, and still the venture capital process is antiquated and almost medieval. Like you go round and round like uh, these investors and it's incredibly slow moving, incredibly inefficient. And just how we've seen technology transform pretty much every single industry whether that's real estate or transportation or travel, we think it will start to transform investing in the private capital markets, just like it's transformed the public capital markets in Wall Street over the last 30 years. So you know, we, we're building a fund really from the ground up, combining just this sort of very unique human element, which is based from the, the team at NFX with the sort of exceptional founding talent, with a technology component really from the ground up. So we think about this, we think about the software that we're building really in kind of three different buckets. So one is the um, building tools to help ourselves. So that's really just to understand like, so who is this team? What are they building? What's the market? Like, how do we know these people? Does anyone else, do we know these people? Uh, how are we connected to people? Just trying to sort of like understand the companies. Two is that we're building software to help the companies kind of almost help themselves. So whether this is community software, um, collaboration software, sharing benchmarks, sharing KPIs to help the portfolio and for us to really be efficient with our time to help the portfolio. And three is we're building software to help the entire entrepreneurial community. So one of these products is called Signal. And the, you know, the, this is a network, so it's helping founders connect with investors. Um, and we realize that you know, for the nature of our business is that we can only help less than 1% of the founders that contact us. And so for us to build software, we can help the other 99% plus of founders and, and build these tools that we can release for free to the, to the founder community to help them. So we think that, you know, that over the next kind of 10 years, it's sort of hard to imagine the leading venture capital funds not having a leading proprietary software component, just like you can't imagine the major automotive brands having a major software component, or the major um, travel companies, or the ma major you know, beauty companies, for that matter, having a major software component. Well, that puts quite a bit of pressure, I think, as well, on the other VC firms, right, to kind of keep, keep it up. And do you think it, that's the trend that we're going to see going forward, that the, actually the investors are going to 
you know, not, it's not just enough to give the money, that you're going to have to actually do a bit more for the, for the entrepreneurs. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly right. I think there's, I mean, the, you've seen how kind of venture capital, particularly in the Bay Area, has kind of moved from just a kind of a money business to becoming a kind of building these venture platforms. So, you, so really this is pioneered, I think, by, or at least popularized by Andreessen Horowitz, which is kind of built 150, a staff of 150 people. They write big, big checks um, and then focus kind of at the Series A, B um, stage. And, you know, they're providing these platforms to really provide not just money, but kind of expertise. And so we think about it in a similar way, but we're focused at a much earlier stage investing. So principally at the seed stage, which we think is the most kind of formative time for founders, as well as just the most intellectually interesting for us. It's kind of a founders who we like to kind of help, help companies find product market fit. Um, we think that's the most intellectually interesting and the most important, quite frankly. So it is raising the bar. We've been, you know, the way that we're able to do that um, is fairly unique is that we've chosen not to, the, the partners have chosen not to take any salary. So the way that venture capital works is that, you know, you raise this money from these big kind of foundations, institutions, and then you have these management fees that go into, you know, paying salaries and then also paying kind of like for staff and infrastructure. You know, we're, we're not, we've chosen not to take salaries, but just to make, you know, income from the returns that we make for the entrepreneurs. So what that means is that we only make money when entrepreneurs make money, which is very unique. And so, it, and we put all the rest of the management fee into software engineers, into platform, helping them. And rather than 150 people, we want to have a small team of incredible engineers building software tools for other entrepreneurs. Well, that's fantastic. And I suppose it's a, it's a win-win for, you know, for the entrepreneurs, but also for you guys. And a great way to kind of differentiate yourselves as well from the other, other, other VC firms. Um, great. So we have uh, some, uh, some questions coming in. So uh, let's kick off with those. Um, the first question is, um, could you walk us through some of the pains in changing management teams as the company grows? So, you know, I think the... I mean, as a kind of founder CEO, one of the hardest things that I've, I've been through is, you know, is, is you think about the company, which is roughly 10 people, and there are, you know, there's certain individuals that are the perfect people for 10 people. And how do you realize as that company gets to 100 and 200 and 300 people that the kind of role that they're in is perhaps not the best role for them? Um, and they've been so loyal and so supportive and you kind of really want them part of that, they're part of the culture and then figuring out how do you kind of manage that, that process. And it's a, um, you know, I've had to sort of move people around that have worked for me that are great friends today. And I, I think that's a, that's a, you know, what often founders are blind to is this sort of experience of, um, you know, so-and-so is incredibly talented and incredibly useful but hasn't kind of been able to, um, to scale with the organization. And that's okay, like that's okay. I think there's like the sort of perception that this is a bad thing. It's actually the fluidity of talent is an incredibly valuable thing. And how I, do you tell them? How do you how tell them? How do you break them? the news? <laughs> um, you know, I think this is a sort of, it's re, like with any sort of piece of feedback, this is not a, you kind of have to manage this process carefully. And you also have to recognize that you have to give them a chance to step up. So the hope is that these kind of first 10 employees do stay with you as you get to 1,000 people. And so you have to invest in them and you have to coach them 
and you have to bring in management teams. So often, you know, you see a lot of first-time managers and first-time CEOs just sort of don't invest in kind of management and infrastructure. And the only way that, you know, like the only way that you're going to scale, you know, just, just imagine the kind of Olympic athletes. The only way that you become an Olympic athlete is because you have coaches, because you have teams, you have advisors that help you. And the same for CEO, the same for the management team as well. So you want to give people the, the opportunity to scale, to give them learning and training. And then, but if that doesn't happen, then that's okay. And, and kind of helping them along that journey. And I suppose it works the other way around as well. There will be some people that will themselves want to move on and, and feel like there are some other places where they can develop better. And then you have to accept that and acknowledge that as well. So it works, I suppose. Both yeah, ways. I think that's, I mean, it's, it's you, you know, the transition often, I was like a founder CEO and I'm a product guy at heart. So I think intimately about the product and dynamics and sort of growth. And, and then you have to, that transition as a CEO for me, me being the kind of head of product the head of company and there's such a fundamental kind of piece of success is being that um, steward of talent within an organization kind of putting the right people in the right seats kind of on, on the bus and and, I, and realizing that you know as a company scales that you have to kind of move people around and into particular seats that um, that's so critical for the company to succeed great um, so the next question um, is um kind of double-checking whether NFX is, is concentrating on growing the marketplaces and how interested are you in talent-matching platforms? Uh, so, um, so first of all, the, the core thesis around NFX as a venture capital fund is the recognition that the majority of value is created by network effect businesses. And we think about this very, very broadly. And we've defined 13 different types of network effect businesses, everything from two-sided marketplaces to personal network effects and social network networks. Um, and then I guess within the sort of, the question is like within marketplaces, what do you think about talent matching networks? Um, so I think it's, you know, that HR is a very fruitful area for, for many, many companies. So they've seen, you know, we've seen that, you know, obviously there's um, there's a number of very successful companies. Think about the billion-dollar businesses, whether that's Indeed or LinkedIn, to some extent Workday. There's, 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 there's great success. Um, you know, we, we invested uh, about a year ago in a very early-stage company called Incredible Health, which is essentially a um, talent-matching marketplace, specifically within the U.S. healthcare system. And so, like, so yeah, it's interesting. It's like, it's... There are certain niches that are particularly attractive within that. So that's, and the, you know, the amount of money they're spending on recruiting is going to still grow. So it's an interesting space. Fantastic. All right. The next question is um, regarding a charity project um, that you're involved in. And, and the person is asking, could you consider mentoring a crypto-based startup in charity industry? A crypto-based company in the charity industry. Yes. I mean, well, it's hard to know. I wouldn't rule anything <laughs> out. The sort of um, uh, we, do, we don't really do any mentoring outside of investing. So we, you know, the only companies that we work with are only companies we invest in. Um, and so, you know, we have a uh, we're building a portfolio of companies, and we're as, as partners, we're really hands-on with the companies we invest in. 
and we're just exclusively focused on that. So unless we're an investor, we don't get involved. Um, Do you want to talk about the charity project or the charity side of things that you're yeah. involved in? So the so I so sort of the personal experience. I spent a decade helping the average American in the U.S. move from essentially a three-bed to a four-bed um, house, and it was awesome. Created, transformed the industry, but it didn't really help. What to me is the bigger problem, which is helping with someone with no bed to have a bed. The homeless industry, homeless problem globally. Um, and I, uh, I came across once, you know, post the acquisition, I came across uh, an early stage team, which is called New Story, New Story Charity. And what they're doing is it's they're really a tech company that happens to be a nonprofit. And they're building homes in the areas that are most in need. So they're building, starting in Haiti after the terrible earthquake. So they're really a crowdfunding platform with a sort of technology DNA that's, that's building homes for $6,000 in Haiti, in El Salvador, in Bolivia, in kind of all these sort of um, hard hit communities. And they run like a tech company. So 100%, for example, 100% of the, the money that goes from, uh, from donors goes into the houses themselves. There's this video loop that gives you feedback which is just an incredible organization. So there's a lot of other tech executives like myself that are supporting that charity. That's fantastic. Very inspiring, a very good cause as well. Um, there's a question um, on the property side um, of, of, of things about borderless finance. Do you believe that the time to build the global marketplace for property loans has arrived? For property laws? Yeah. Uh, unlikely. Um, frankly, because real estate is incredibly local. Um, kind of when you look at the, you know, there's both the sort of human nature of real estate is that <clears throat> a lot, certainly I, I don't know the European market so well, but in the US there's a sort of statistic where something like, and I forget this exact number, but some like two thirds of people move within five miles of their previous residence. And so, and I think, I imagine in Europe it's kind of even larger number of people will move in a shorter distance. So real estate is incredibly local. Plus the rules and legislation are both, you know, a very sort of county specific, city specific, if not certainly state and, and country specific. And so there's no generalization of this. So, you know, that's the sort of the localization of these marketplaces is, is very, um, it's very specific. So there's no reason to have a global platform for um, for real estate law. Interesting. <laughs> um, I'm going to modify the next question a little bit, but it's, it's, it's basically a, um, around kind of the EU and the US as single markets. And what do you think about that? I mean, you have said that US as, you know, as a market, as a single market is great. And obviously it's, it's, it's big enough as well as a standalone market for, for many, many companies and many startups. Uh, do you see kind of like, how do you, when you compare, for example, the EU and, and the US, what are some of the kind of pros and cons, I suppose? Uh, yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's been just this, like having been in technology in Europe, there's just this huge enthusiasm for a common digital market. Um, and it's just been really hard to pull off. I think there's some elements where there is, there's, there's been some sort of commonality. And, you know, as a Brit, I'm somewhat saddened about what's going on in, uh, <laughs> in the UK. Well, not just somewhat extremely sad. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I sort of, part of my kind of reason to move to the U.S. was just the 
challenges around scaling across Europe. Um, you know, it's certainly a lot easier today to scale across Europe versus it was 15 years ago. You know, and I think there are <clears throat> the companies that are very successful in, in Europe, it seems to be, are those that are recognizing that the, um, the multiple borders and multiple languages and multiple currencies is not a, a weakness, it actually becomes an asset. So how do you think, you know, companies are looking at it, like whether that's Finnish gaming companies that immediately go global um, because they recognize, okay, we need to go outside of Finland. The same, for example, happens in Israel where technical teams are really building global businesses. Same thing is, is particular, particularly happened for certain business in, in Northern Europe. Uh, and then there's also companies, whether that's the um, payments companies, whether that's communication companies, are realizing that those are bigger problems in Europe than they are in the US. Communication across different countries, um, payments across different countries, and so they build this capability, which is very different from the US companies, which are actually kind of, they're not, they're not frustrated by it. So the, you know, the judo move is like, what is your weakness and how do you turn that to an asset? And how you kind of make, because that creates also a lot of opportunities, like you mentioned, for so many, you know, um, so it's not, it's not just a weakness. Um, that's a very good point. Um, somebody's actually asking um, about the tool that you were mentioning, that platform that you guys are building for investors and startups to kind of meet and what that tool is called or whether that's something that you're only providing for the startups in your own network or is that like widely available? Yep, so, uh, so, so we launched a tool called Signal, signal.nfx.com. Uh, and this is a fundraising network, so helping connect uh, uh, founders with, with um, sources of capital. And so this, we made this available to every single person, so anyone anywhere in the world can use this platform. So we have 6,000 investors. Predominantly, it's US-based, which is where we are. Um, but anyone can add their profile and kind of add information about themselves. So the, the problem we're trying to solve is the warm introduction problem. So what we used to face as, as investors, like every single day pretty much, one of our angel investments or portfolio companies would come to us and say, hey Pete, I need an introduction to Sequoia. Like, who do you know at Sequoia? I said, well, I know Brian, he was on my board, I know this person, this person, this person. Um, and then, well, what about Excel? What about Benchmark and all these different... Um, so we spend all our time making these warm introductions. And so, well, we must be a better way to do that. So we built a software tool. We built it for ourselves. It saved us a huge amount of time, saved founders huge amount of time to find this, like, who is the right person should I, that I should speak to? And then what's the right way to, to connect with them? Who can be that warmest introduction? So we made this available to everyone. Really because it's a network. The more people use it, the better it gets for everyone else, which is the sort of core of what NFX is. So making it available to anyone improves the founder experience and also improves the, the investor experience. And how receptive are the investors to then actually take those, you know, contacts and approaches from the startups that are... I mean, the, I mean like, you know, there are many ways to get to me or my partners. You can sort of contact us in any ways. But, you know, for us, as well as the vast majority of venture investors, the they will only take warm introductions and so like they will and they will only consider warm introductions so if you can find a way to invest an investor through someone that they know and they trust the conversion rate unsurprisingly is dramatically different and so we help our portfolio companies with those introductions to make warm introductions to particular investors 
And then so, but we, we encourage every entrepreneur to find a warm introduction. So, you know, the best way to contact me or my partners is through a warm introduction. And then it's easier for us to kind of filter that out. That's a great insider tip, guys. All right, the next question would be, um, European startups are often asked to set up a U.S. company and move parts or entire team to the U.S. What's your opinion on this? So I think if, you're, if you want to build a global business, you have to have a base in Silicon Valley, like period. So if you want to build a global business, having a, 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 a base there, and that, that's just sort of, sure, there will be exceptions, but it just makes life so much easier. Um, the concentration of capital, the concentration of talent, the, con the concentration of, of kind of ideas and culture is incredibly unique. Uh, so, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, perhaps you don't have bases elsewhere, but it's so much easier. The reason that investors do that uh, and do encourage it is that they are much closer to the entrepreneur and could be really more of a strategic partner to them to help them to scale. Um, and, uh, you know, we've just seen over the decades of whether that's kind of Facebook started in the East Coast, moved to Silicon Valley. You've seen how, like, you know, even the European success stories like Skype, they built an office within Silicon Valley not that long after launch. So consistently companies are moving or having a, a base in Silicon Valley. And it's, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't have a lot of presence kind of elsewhere, but... Just statistically, if you're building a global business, you will put yourself an advantage for raising money, for high valuations, attraction to talent, and then just the idea flow. You're just in that flow where there's just sort of a concentration of ideas that makes it easier. Great. So the two, two locations you guys have to, have to nail, Silicon Valley and Helsinki, right? All right. So um, we have a, a time for a couple more questions. Um, the next one is... Bit of an um, investment advice. Would you invest into um, secured property loans in multiple countries, spreading the risk between different properties in different geographies and currencies? Uh, the, the sort of gut reaction is that real estate is incredibly local. And so this sort of like, so it's interesting, the sort of crowdfunding syndication and fractional ownership within real estate, which is, I think is, is very interesting. But people typically like to invest in things that they know well. And particularly property investors, they understand, do they understand the market? And do they have some sort of unique edge? And so uh, if I understood it correctly, then, um, you know, I would probably encourage more of a localized model within, within real estate. Makes sense. Um, people also want to know where do you see the most opportunities in blockchain? And what's, what are your thoughts around ICOs? Huh. Um, uh, so it's it's so interesting. It feels like um, you know just the sort of dawn of uh, blockchain, even though Bitcoin is obviously grown dramatically. Uh, so it does feel at, at the dawn, and it feels like what's happening today is almost the infrastructure build out. Like you know, just like the internet 20 years ago, the sort of famous companies were the kind of networking companies, like the TC based on TCIP. They were building kind of infrastructure, and today there's a lot of infrastructure companies being built, yet not that many sort of apps being built that are really sort of proven, but infrastructure is being built out. Uh, I, yeah, I fundamentally think that blockchain could transform fundraising and ICOs. Um, 
But just like we saw in the kind of the internet boom, there's trying to figure out what are the one or two companies out of 100 companies that are the credible ones, important ones, the scalable ones. Um, it's incredibly hard to kind of identify that. Um, and so I would, I think ICOs can be important. They've, you know, we've invested in companies that have gone on to do an ICO very successfully. Um, but it's, a, it's fraught with risk. Um, and so I would, I would be, I'd be hesitant to do it. If you can't raise equity and you choose an ICO, then that's a problem. You probably won't be successful. So don't think of it as a substitute. Think of it as a complement. Um, you know, if you've proven to raise, if you if you're able to raise equity financing, and you've got a real reason to have a token that creates value for the ecosystem, then it's then it's very interesting. But I, it's at least in today's market, I would, um, I would proceed with caution. Got it. All right, we're uh, running out of time, so I just wanted to wrap up with uh, with a kind of a, a final question. So, as you mentioned, um, NFX is all about you know investing in um, network effect businesses. So, uh, going forward, I mean, how do you see? Do you, do you think there will be more businesses with the network effect? I mean, how do you, do you think it's going to be almost like a necessity for you know businesses to to have that that uh, component, or, or where do you see that going? So we, so we think so. So we, the reason we're, we're kind of excited about network effects is sort of twofold. One is about, the reason we think about it is for de defensibility. So like, how do, if you build a successful business, how do you make it defensible? Um, and a key component that's available for startups has been the network effects, the cried defensibility. Um, and as we've seen, as the growth of the internet and technology more broadly, technology ultimately reduces transaction costs that facilitates networking between different participants in an ecosystem. So we've seen how, like, how network effects have been an important component sort of 20 years ago, but as trans transaction costs have been reduced, the, um, the liquidity in these networks has actually been amplified, and network effects are even more important. So we see them, of course, happening in sort of networks that are sort of B2B or B2C, but also we see network effects happening in Self-driving cars, for instance, so there's data network effects there. There's platform businesses built out of AR. There will be data network effects in AI businesses. And we'll be, you know, you think about human biology as these sort of traditional analoging and chemical industries become increasingly digital industries. The same digital techniques, which we see in the, the key driver value as being network effects, will be applied to these new form digital industries such as bio and, and kind of healthcare industries. So the companies that exploit network effects will give themselves an unfair advantage and defensibility in those industries. So we've seen, just like this has been a mainstay of technology for the last 30 years, we see it being amplified in the future. Great. I think this is a good time to wrap up our, our Q&A. Thank you so much, Pete Flynn. Please give it up for Pete. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Slush Podcast. Find out more about Slush at slush.org. Please rate and review our podcast. And if you haven't yet done so, subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.